one of the things I most appreciate <coughs> about being back in the West after five years in the tropics in Burma is the changing of the seasons. <coughs> we have seasons in Burma also, but it's hot, hotter, and wet. <coughs> this time of year here is my favorite. I still have preferences. <laughs> There's something about the qualities of fall that seem to make it an appropriate time to be doing this type of practice or to be doing this work with ourselves. It's the time of year when the shadows are getting long, the nights are getting long, the days are getting shorter. There's a feeling of closing down coming to an end. The harvesting of fruits, the dropping of leaves, the letting go of acorns and milkweed seed. And the skies gray over into some somber sameness it just doesn't have the brilliance and the openness of summer. And it seems like the season calls us to go within and to look inside and to see what's there. The ground is buried under leaves. The mind is buried under many things. There's a sense of somber grayness, and to me there's an apprehension in the air of what's to come. And the coolness that we can feel in the last couple days really tends to contract us, pulls us inside to find that warm place to stay. So for me, this time of year is quite natural or a appropriate time to be doing the work here of going within, harvesting fruits and letting go. Tonight I want to talk about letting go and what we're letting go of and how we are letting go. We in the West are pretty heavily conditioned not to let go of anything. Certainly not our material goods and not much of our mental goods either not much of our mental bads either. <clears throat> and in our society, we're really not encouraged or educated to acknowledge the process of growing old and dying. And because of that, there's a lot of fear and denial and repression and tremendous confusion about the process that we all will go through as we come to the end of this life. It's a mystery. We don't remember any personal experience of our own previous death. <clears throat> I remember when I was a late teenager, a good friend of mine, this was 20-some years ago, a good friend of mine's father got cancer. And back then, there really wasn't much 
consciousness about cancer. This was a real baddie, a real bugaboo. Something that one was ashamed of, as if somehow they had failed to be a human being. And every time that I would go to visit this friend, I wasn't allowed to see her father. If he was in the room where I was coming into the house, I would have to wait till he moved to another room, or I'd have to go in another room. Or if I happened to walk through a room that he was in, I couldn't look, and I couldn't talk about it, and I couldn't ask about him. It was such a shroud of secrecy and shame. And there was tremendous fear and tension in that household. and not a little confusion. The Buddha, in his teachings, enumerated what he had discovered to be the truth of all existence. The first truth being that life contains some unsatisfactoriness. And I'm sure all of us have some personal experience and could relate some personal stories of our own experience with someone else's death, whether it's a friend or a family or an acquaintance, family member or an acquaintance. We have some experience Certainly, as the Buddha enumerated, tremendous grief, sense of loss, lamentation, pain, suffering. And we in the West have added a few more. Shame, guilt, sense of unworthiness or failure, quite a lot of blame, rage, some self-pity. Oh, poor me. What'll I do without you? In all fairness to those of us who have worked in these past years to bring some consciousness into our life and into our death, there is now, of course, considerable attention on the hospice movement and the work of Stephen Levine and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and many others to bring some light into the dying process for many people. And it's been tremendously beneficial for many and probably all of us in this room if they have gotten some benefit from their work. But 200,000 people died today, every day. And a lot of them didn't have any opportunity to hear about conscious living or conscious dying. I want to explore tonight whether it's possible to have some understanding or to have some relationship to death, our own death, other than pain, fear, and confusion. Whether there's some way to relate to the process of dying that can encourage us to wake up. Some people my mother being one of them, can't stand to hear anybody talk about death. It's just too pessimistic or too morbid or too yuck. And she just absolutely refuses to be around anyone that has anything to think or say about death. And my father died many years ago. Why is it that so many of us consider and feel the skin creep when we hear about death. 
or when we talk about death, or when someone asks us about death. I think for most of us, because we don't know what it is, we have tremendous amount of images come to mind that we may or may not be aware of about how people have died or how we might die. And the whole process of just being sick and losing control of the body or the mind or both. And these images are terribly frightening. Or the fact of one being dead where everything is stopped. Everything that we know no longer exists for us. What is that? How can we relate to that even? Many of us have some mythological or religious beliefs about what will happen after death. Maybe for some a source of comfort, maybe for others a source of fear. Eternal heaven, eternal hell, and everything in between. So when we begin to open to or investigate or consider death, all of these images flood the mind as much as we can allow them, and immediately we're stumped. We can't go much further. The fear comes, clamps down our mind, and we're stuck. If we don't look, we can't see. But when we begin to investigate death or dying, the thing that we run up against first and maybe most strongly is our rationalizations, our justifications, dismissals, denials, conclusions, religious beliefs, fixed ideas, dogma, anything but the fact itself. When my father died, I was in my early 20s, I think, and I didn't know anything about dying either. But something happened. It's a pretty powerful experience for all of us who know. And for a couple of years, it seemed, I, I wasn't doing meditation practice. I'd never, I hadn't started yet. And, but for a couple of years, I just found myself in something like a deep reflection on death and dying and bones and skeletons and everything that I knew and didn't know. It so happened that I was just getting into the music of the Grateful Dead at the time, and they've got lots of images in their songs and albums and everything else that just kept me in a semi-perpetual state of deep looking or observation of all that came to mind around death and dying. So when I speak of death tonight, I don't mean to be morbid or gloomy, but rather to investigate this other side of the coin of life, birth and death, so that we can come to some understanding of the whole of life, a right understanding if there is one. So it's really a proper topic for us to consider and to investigate. My teacher in Burma, he said, life is like a mushroom. When it comes up out of the ground, nice and white, there's always a little dirt that stays on top of the cap. When we come up into life, 
there's a little dirt that sticks around. It's our death. So if we can come to some understanding through investigation of what this process of birth and death, the whole of life is, maybe we can begin to consider death with other than a fearful or confused mind. If we don't understand death, we can't really understand life. So what is death? I think universally we all could agree that it's a mystery. And that's about probably as far as the the agreement goes. And because it's a mystery, we don't know. We really don't know anything about it. And because of it, there is some, because of this mystery and this unknowing, there's some fear some reaction to what it might be. And we pull away. We can't get too close to it easily. What have we learned? We've known people that have died, and 200,000 died today and every day. What have we learned? What can we learn from their death? Anything? I don't mean biological and medical facts and data. I don't really mean what was their process through the Kubler-Ross stages or anything like that. But what was their process with their fear and their limitations and their own grief and their own beliefs and ideas. Every society, every culture on the face of the earth has their own myth about the dying process and what happens after death. Christians, of course, have their heaven and hell. Hindus have their eternal soul, which is reincarnated time after time, time after time. Primitive cultures also have their beliefs in something, in the popular little book that's on the bestseller list these days, The Education of Little Tree. Even there they refer to and say, next time will be better. Hopeful, isn't it? The Buddhists, too, have a very elaborate description of the many planes of existence that that our karma can be reborn or take root in once we pass from this life. We in the West, though, are pretty sophisticated. We have access to all of these other cultures, beliefs and myths and understandings and hopes and fears. And for many of us, we're pretty clever and we can synthesize our own. A little bit of this, a little bit of that, mix it all together, come up with our own belief, our own understanding, our own predisposition. But this is knowledge only not wisdom, not self-knowledge. Wendell Berry puts it like this, his synthesis. All our days are arrows, now at the turn of life, half-fledged and knowledgeable, I face the coming of the rest, their grief and pain made accurate by their joy. So I will leave the world full feathered. I must fly to an unknown place. Very creative. 
When the Bodhisattva was still a prince living in the palace, as Stephen told the story a few nights ago, one day when he set out with his charioteer into the village, he came across or came upon an old person, a sick person, and a corpse. Having never seen them before, he asked his charioteer about them and was told that this was what would happen to all human beings. That knowledge that he too would grow old, get sick, and die aroused in him, I guess what we would call now a spiritual crisis. And he felt tremendous urge and urgency to investigate the causes of the suffering attendant upon old age, disease, and death. This sense of urgency, this sense of needing to find out for oneself what it's all about, was pretty easy for the bodhisattva to arouse just from the knowledge of old age, disease, and death. We have that knowledge. We may not have that urgency. When the Buddha began teaching after his own awakening, one of the things he taught were protective meditations for those who are on a path of awakening. Because, as you probably have discovered, it's not easy and it's sometimes frightening. And so we need to protect ourselves from some of our own fears. One of the protective meditations that he taught is to reflect on one's own death. And how is that a protective meditation? It protects the mind by bringing a sense of peace or tranquility to one's practice. And it protects one from being lazy or taking their practice casually. The word in the Buddhist language for the reflection on death is called uh, marana sati, mindfulness of death, mara being the personification of death. And in this case, mara is actually the whole of the rounds of existence, the whole of any birth and death in any realm. Everything that is experienced in any realm is mara. So when we reflect on Mara, it's, for us in this room, it's reflection as life as a human being. But we can also understand it to be reflection in any realm of existence, if you believe in them. And when one, le- when one reflects on their own death, it can lead one to a sense of urgency and prevent one from being casual in their practice. Because when we reflect on our death, we have to acknowledge that any moment, any time, any place, any one of us could not make it back to the room. It's real easy. You just die. We don't know. We think we do. You know, I'm only 40. I'm only halfway there. I gave this talk once. I gave it last night, actually, up to another place. And someone said, well, I'm only halfway there now. I've only lived half my life. We don't know. We might think if we're 40, we've got half to go. But we can't be so sure. When we understand that, And in our meditation, we can see 
the momentariness of experience coming and going. When we understand that any moment this could all come to an end, it's encouragement or inspires us to, colloquial speaking, get it together and to do what we need to do in this moment to be able to let go at last. And how do we do that? Because we're in so many relationships with so many people, it's really helpful to live consciously with others, to do those things with and for and to others that brings harmony, that brings understanding, that brings some sort of tranquility or peace between you. To develop a heart of open-handed giving, generosity. To share what you have physically. To share your knowledge. To share your material goods. To share your time with other people. You can't take it with you. It would happen sometimes in Burma that people were very generous and they would oftentimes bring things to me and the other monks and offer and it would be far more than I could possibly eat or wear. You know, sometimes I would just get, you know, a couple of sets of robes a week and tons of food and stuff that you couldn't possibly use. But it felt really good to them to offer. And it felt really good for me to receive it. My heart would be light, their heart would be light. And then I'd have something that I could give to someone. And sure enough, I'd offer half or most of my stuff to someone else. And of course, they already had plenty anyway. But I felt good and they felt good. And then they had some more to give to someone else. And it would go on like this until somebody who really needed it would keep it and use it. So many people can feel good when you give. Developing a generous heart. Developing a loving heart. This was most painfully brought home to me several years ago. I was in a relationship and it was going through its dying days. And I was in Amherst with this woman and we were trying to be polite to each other. But in the process, we're having a terrible argument. I don't know if it was a noisy one or a silent one, but it was an argument. And we ended up separating from each other that day or leaving, I coming here and she going there or something. And it felt so heavy and so painful in the heart, especially when later she acknowledged to me that she was so afraid that something would happen to one of us and that we'd never be able to take care of that feeling we left each other with if one of us had died, car accident or whatever. The feeling the other person would have been left with based on some angry outburst in the moment after years of being in love and living together. That would have been the memory they were left with. It's not worth it. It's just not worth it to leave relationships in anger, in jealousy, in envy. A generous heart, a loving heart, a knowledgeable heart. When you look at your mind in the meditation practice, most of you, if not all of you, at one time or another have reported these awful memories that keep coming back and tormenting you.
and we're young, most of us, all of us, quite young, strong, physically, mentally, alert, have a lot of strength of mind, and still tormented by painful memories. When we are older, or when we're sick, or when we're weak, when the mind is really weak, what are we going to do then with those memories? When we realize this is the condition of our heart, this is the condition of our life, and we know that death is just waiting here, it can really inspire us to act, care, ringly. Knowing that there's no certainty in this life continuing can really help us cut through and drop the pettiness and the self-pity and the nitpicking things that we burden ourselves with as being so important. All of this talk isn't to depress or to despirit you, but to awaken some sense of the preciousness of this time and this practice, and to arouse maybe a sense of not anxiety, but urgency, a recognition that now is the time. A few years ago, Carlos Castaneda wrote several books about his teaching or his learning from a Native American shaman, a wise man, who taught him about death and how he relates to death. And Don Juan said this, Death is your eternal companion. It is the hunter, and it is always to your left at an arm's length. It has always been watching you, and it always will until the day it taps you. How can you feel so important when you know death is stalking you? The thing to do when you're impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you, or if you catch a glimpse of it, or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. The fact of your death is never pressed far enough. It is the only wise advisor that you have. And whenever you feel that everything is going wrong and you're about to be annihilated, turn to your death and ask if that is so. Your death will tell you that you're wrong, that nothing really matters outside of its touch. Your death will tell you I haven't touched you yet. To ask death's advice is to drop the cursed pettiness that belongs to men and women that live their lives as if death will never tap them. The traditional reflection that the Buddha taught in considering your death is to reflect that life is uncertain, but death is certain. And I, too, will soon be gone. One old haiku zenist put it this way, moon in a barrel, you never know just when the bottom will fall out. So when death is approaching and we're helpless and our mind is weak and the memories are just flooding in, how can we be calm? How can we be peaceful? 
How can we be quiet? How can we be happy? When we consider that type of dying process, uncalm, unpeaceful, unquiet, unhappy, we might get afraid. But that fear need not be a harmful fear, nor a fear of aversion, but really a good fear, a fear that moves us to come to terms with the facts of life, to come to face our own dying, to face the letting go of everything we know, everything we are. When we can let go of the solidity of our life, as Joseph talked about last night, the solidity which we believe we are because we don't see the change. When we can let go of what we are, the roles that we fulfill, teacher, student, mother, father, husband, the positions that we hold, when we can let go of our self-judgments, I'm shameful, I'm unhappy, I'm an angry person, I'm a good person. When we can let go of all those things that we are, we can begin to experience or know emptiness. When we can let go of everything that we have, our material possessions, our fame, our shame, our money and our plans, we can begin to feel unburdened. And when we can let go of what we want, those material things, you know, another cookie, or another car, or a retirement fund, when we can let go of those emotional wants, happiness, love, or spiritual wants, enlightenment. Can we let go of wanting that? If we can, we'll begin to understand contentment. And maybe most difficult is letting go of what we know. All the facts we've accumulated, all the expertise, all of our arrogance. Can we learn to let go of that and be innocently wise? If we can learn to let go of all that we experience, having, wanting, being, Freedom waits. Wendell Berry puts it like this. Willing to die, you give up your will. Keep still until, moved by what moves all else, you move. How do we let go? We've got to see what we're hanging on to before we can let go. The way to see is to connect with your experience and stay with it. Simple, it's what we're doing here. Connect and sustain. Identify your experience. Once you know it, you can let go. If you don't know, you can't let go. And as you're discovering, as you continue to try to connect and stay with your experience, 
to see what it is that we're stuck to, who we are stuck on being, a tremendous amount of energy is required. A tremendous amount of energy is generated. The whole system becomes alive, vital. If in the moment of experiencing any object, mental state, emotion, or whatever, if we can understand its nature of arising and passing away, and our relationship to it, of attachment or aversion or envy or jealousy, confusion, if we can see that, we can let go of it. And in that letting go of our need, whatever it is, there's a momentary dropping of myself, our self, me. There's a momentary letting go of who I am this wanting being, this averse being, this guilty being. That momentary letting go is death. The death of your experience. The sense of I stops briefly. This is not aversion to who I am who I think I am, but it's a letting go of what makes me, this wanting, this aversion. And in that moment of letting go, the mind is pure, the mind is reborn, fresh, light, clear, connecting with the next momentarily arising experience. really quite important in the practice to begin to see the nature of the momentariness of all of our experience. Even if it's this massive, you know, aversion that sets in for a day. Within that day of aversion, it's just momentary arising. Every time we're aware of it, it's gone momentarily. Be there for it. When we can begin to see the changing nature of experience, the incessant flux of mental and physical stuff, we can begin to open to the whole range of what's possible, what might happen or what can happen, wherever the mind can go as one lyricist put it. Be all of those things you're able to be. An old Chinese hermit puts it this way. The moon lights up my door. The wind blows open my robe. Sit down on a rock and hear my mountain song. Black hair turns to snow. Dawn to evening shade. Everything's due on the grass. Nothing's meant to last. What really matters is not who we are, what we have, what we think, what we believe, but really what we can let go of. That's what really matters. To know this life, to know this momentary experience, this nowness, we have to die to the last. Let the last experience go. Be there for the next. To live, you've got to die. To understand your death, you've got to live. 
to live or die, you have to be awake. And that means caring, carefully or caringly, to be with this experience, understanding that it's only this experience in this present now that is life. Lao Tzu puts it this way, the invincible shield of caring is a weapon from the sky against being dead. As we practice here over the days, over the weeks, moments of mindfulness, clarity, and concentration creep into our general confusion and aversion and massive multiple hindrance attacks. But moments of lightness and brightness, understanding, being with momentarily arising, passing away of experience. Sometimes it can all begin to seem pretty dreamlike and pretty where am I and what's happening and what's really real here? And our flipping in and out of being into practice and really touching the realities that the Buddha speaks of, the earth element and the fire elements, the wind elements, feeling the movement, the heat, the hardness, the stiffness, the tightness, the tension. Living with that reality, entering that reality and coming out back into the I, me, mine, happiness, present, past, future, reality or unreality. And the mix just gets kind of soupy and we're just kind of in and out noticing both. Really, it's a ebb and flow of all of the elements of mind and body and understanding and confusion. One lyricist wrote a song for his father when he was dying, really expresses what it is we're going through here as we learn to let go and what he perceived his father going through as he was dying and learning to let go. I'd like to read these lyrics. Look out of any window, any morning, any evening, any day. Maybe the sun is shining, birds are winging, or rain is falling from a heavy sky. What do you want me to do for you? To do for you, to see you through. For this is all a dream we dreamed one afternoon long ago. Walk out of any doorway, feel your way, feel your way like the day before. Maybe you'll find direction around some corner where it's been waiting to meet you. What do you want me to do? To watch for you while you're sleeping. Well, please don't be surprised when you find me dreaming too. Walk into splintered sunlight. Inch your way through dead dreams to another land. Maybe you're tired and broken. Your tongue is twisted with words half spoken and thoughts unclear. What do you want me to do to do for you to see you through? A box of rain will ease the pain and love will see you through. Just a box of rain, wind and water. Believe it if you need it. If you don't, just pass it on. Sun and shower, wind and rain, 
in and out of the window like a moth before a flame. It's just a box of rain. I don't know who put it there. Believe it if you need it. Leave it if you dare. It's just a box of rain or a ribbon for your hair. Such a long, long time to be gone and a short time to be there. When we talk about death, we're really talking about life, the birth and death, the rebirth and redeath, the whole cycle of life throughout this lifetime, many lifetimes or existences if you believe in that. But the Buddha had another teaching that I want to just touch on briefly. And he talked about opening the mind to know something beyond all birth and all death. To come to some understanding and openness and being with the unconditioned, the deathless state where there's no birth, no death, no rebirth, another reality. And he put it this way, mindfulness is the way to the deathless. Unmindfulness is the way to death. Those who are mindful do not die. Those who are not mindful are as if already dead. Mindfulness is the way to the deathless. Unmindfulness is the way to death. Those who are mindful do not die. Those who are not mindful are as if already dead. So let's sit for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.